Good morning. Glad all of you are here. Glad if you're online, glad you're doing that as well. Uh, let's jump right in to our text this morning. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. Let me read it for us. And before I do, let's uh, take a second, sort of quiet our hearts a little bit, allow God's spirit to work within us. I'll pause and then we'll read this text together. So let's, let's do that. Later they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And Jesus said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. God, I'm glad uh, that we can be here. I'm, I'm glad that we have uh, the space to be here, the freedom to be here. Lord, that you've called us as your people to gather, to worship, to walk with you, to learn about you. And Father, I'm thankful that you've drawn uh, folks here. And I ask, Lord, that um, in whatever way possible by your spirit, you would be at work in all that we say and do here in a way that glorifies you, that that draws um, men and women and children to you, that um, helps us to know who Jesus is and that our lives will be transformed by your spirit and by him so that we can really know you. And so I'd ask, Lord, that nothing that I would say or do or have said or done or left unsaid or undone would in any way hinder the work of your spirit, but that instead we would see Jesus. I ask, Lord, that um, as the psalmist did, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, my wife, Sherry, a.k.a. the governor, uh, we've been married now for almost 30 years. It'll be 30 in October. And um, I've noticed something. I'm not sure at what point in our marriage this began. Um, but I'm, and I'm, not try, I'm, not like, uh, I'm not trying to earn some points, although is this being live-streamed? But I think of my I think about my wife a lot during the day, uh, and uh, which is you know good. I love her, and I, I so I think about her a lot, and I know that she thinks about me um, because sometimes my wife has conversations with me when I'm not there. Um, I don't know if that happens to other people, uh, and so there are moments when we'll be together, and she will start in the middle of that conversation that she had with me that I wasn't, I, where I wasn't there. Uh, it's, uh, it's, like, um, it's like that uh, English, for English lit people, you know how great epics begin, you know, in media rest, right? In the middle of things, right? 
That's how some of these conversations are. And those are moments of panic for me, right? <laughs> because I think, oh, maybe I wasn't paying attention. Uh, or I, maybe I missed something, maybe when she was talking to me, or maybe I missed a text or something like that. But no, sometimes it's just that she sort of starts in the, big, in the middle of this conversation, and I wasn't there. And I am smart enough to know that um, at those moments I will say, hey, I, I, don't, I don't think I was around for the first part of that. Um, or if, if I was, I just want to apologize now. I was not giving it the attention that it deserved. Would, would you remind uh, sort of backing up a little bit so that I could catch up? Uh, if you weren't around for the first part of our text last week, it might feel a little bit like that uh, because this text begins in media rest, in the middle of things. Uh, Mark 12, uh, 13 to 17 sort of begins. It, it actually, it, it, Mark, if Mark had uh, been around, he may have sort of employed something that uh, old TV shows or even old movies employed, you know, the later that same day, right? Uh, he could have done that, and it would have been helpful. In fact, um, the NIV begins this text with, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words, which is helpful, right? Because this text starts in the middle of things. In fact, it started way back at the beginning of chapter 11 with the triumphal entry, something we'll talk again about in a couple of weeks when, Gen when Jesus enters Jerusalem on uh, the foal of, of, a, of a donkey. Remember, he comes in like the Prince of Peace. He, come in, he comes into Jerusalem with authority uh, to the shouts of Hosanna, glory to God, Hosanna uh, to our son David, all of that sort of shouts of acclamation uh, of Christ's entry. And then right after that, Jesus, uh, the next day, goes into the temple. And, and he goes into the court of the Gentiles that instead of being a place of prayer, it's a place of commerce. Uh, they have sort of pushed the, the, sort of the, 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 the meaning of that part of the temple aside, pushed the Gentile sort of aspect aside, and they have a marketplace where there's all kinds of buying and selling and money trading. And, uh, and, and maybe it's not all up on the up and up. And Jesus goes into the temple, and he, uh, he chases them out. He turns tables over. He creates havoc. And it does not sit well with the people in charge. And last week, we discovered the people in charge are the Sanhedrins, made up of about 71 men who come from a variety of places, like their chief priests, their, their scribes, their, their elders, their Pharisees. And there's 71 of them. And a group of those uh, have this encounter with Jesus in the temple, which we read about in Mark 11, beginning in verse 37, all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. But what that does, actually, that encounter, it kicks off this series of events. And our text today is in the middle of this, right? It's in the middle of this very significant thing is happening because it sets off this series of confrontations. Um, and they're not pleasant. In fact, uh, throughout the rest of chapter 12, you'll see these confrontations. And if you're conflict avoidant, you can sort of get this sense of how awful it would be, right? That everywhere Jesus goes over this, over this time leading up to the passion narrative, right? Leading up there, there's, there's these constant series of confrontations between Jesus and, this, and members of the Sanhedrin or representatives or these, these groups of people. In fact, when Mark says, and they, we're led to understand that they, in verse 13, is probably the Sanhedrin. 
that the, that the Pharisees and Herodians are, are coming as a group of representatives from that group. And Jesus has this series of, of confrontations with them. Uh, something you may or may not know about me is that uh, about four years ago, uh, I was encouraged to run for public office in, uh, in where I live in Tennessee, and uh, I was elected to serve as a Sullivan County Commissioner, which is a testimony to the fact that I have no friends. Because if I had friends, they would have talked me out of it, right? Because I'm not a politician, but I, but I am now, right? Uh, and I will tell you that over the last four years, something that's happened a, a number of times to me, in fact, it happened last week, is that I find myself either on the phone or standing outside of a courthouse with a camera in my face being asked questions. And what do they want to do? They want to trip you up, right? Uh, and that can be nerve-wracking. And I'm not someone who sort of shies away from conflict, but I can tell you it's less than pleasant. And so reading this series of confrontations in the Gospel of Mark is less than pleasant if you really get down to it because they are there with a specific purpose to trap Jesus, to corner him, to catch him in his words, which is what Mark tells us. And we're in the middle of this, right? And we're stepping into this next in the series of these confrontations. And these confrontations teach us so much about who Jesus is, right? It, it's, it's, it's incredible. Because every time Jesus establishes his authority, that's what they're questioning, his authority. What right do you have? Just who are you that you can do this? They're questioning everything about him, but he establishes his authority over and over again. And in doing so, he establishes his divinity. And he establishes that he is in complete control of his destiny. He knows where he's going, he knows what he's about, and he establishes it. And it teaches us so much about who Jesus is, and at the same time teaches us a great deal about who we are in relationship to him and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's, it's, it's well, it's marvelous. In fact, that's how it's described in our text. It's marvelous. I love that word. I told you all last week, the reason is because of my friend Roger Veith. He says it all the time. And he's right, because it is an incredible word. Marvelous. I mean, think about what this means. But that's how Jesus is described here. Their response to him, they marvel at him. It means to be astonished, to be filled with wonder and surprise, even to be perplexed because you're so astonished at, at what he has done. Isn't that great? In fact, this word is, um, it's only used, I think, 17 times in the entire New Testament. Mark only uses either marvel or marvelous twice. In fact, right before this, right before this moment in, in the Gospel of Mark, he, he, uh, he actually uses the word marvelous in, in Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. But he's quoting Jesus, who's actually quoting from Psalms and, and Psalm 118, in a sense that it was actually talking about himself. Because in, in Psalm uh, 118, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we know that Jesus is talking about himself. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is what? Marvelous in our eyes. And then right after that, that's the word Mark uses to describe the reaction of these men who are rejecting him. I don't think it's by accident. Marvelous. Marvel. And they marveled at him. 
When I read the, when I read that text to you all a few minutes ago, did you marvel at Jesus in that moment? I mean, really, did you? It's okay to say, well, not, not really. It's okay. I mean, because what you want to say when a pastor asks you that question is, oh, yes, pastor, of course. I always marvel at Jesus, right? But you don't, right, all the time. I mean, you're, you're impressed. I'm impressed. I mean, that's the truth. I'm impressed in this moment, right? This is impressive. Maybe it's because I'm too familiar, right? I've read this story a number of times. They marvel at Jesus. And then I find myself sort of questioning, am I marveling at Jesus this moment? They are. I mean, I'm impressed, but maybe I'm too familiar. Sometimes I think um, we can become too close to the situation, too familiar, and it sort of rubs off maybe. And it takes, um, it, it takes some sort of digging back into it. I mean, uh, I've been around Jesus for quite a while now, right? I'm a professional Christian, right? Uh, which I think is funny. Someone called me that not long ago. You're just a professional Christian. I was like, oh, I can't really argue, can I? I can't. And I may have read through that section too quickly at times in, in my life. And that might be the first lesson out of this text. Is sort of unpacking what does it mean to marvel at Jesus and to still marvel at Jesus the longer that we walk with him. And maybe that's part of it, right? That the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we should marvel. Right? The closer we get to the cross, the more aware we are of the depths of our own sin and depravity and our own deep need for who Jesus is and what he's done and sort of this sense of marvel. I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. You'll probably hear me saying it when I walk out the door of this church at some point in the future, that um, we need this constant remembrance of who Jesus is in order for the gospel to advance in and through us. That's how it happens. This constant reminder of who Jesus is and this sense of marvel, I think, is a part of it. And having the right perspective on who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's doing in the world and what he's doing through us is, is really important. And I think that's a great place to start. And so I wanted to start with marvel, which is the end of the text and not the beginning, right? Because I want us to think about what it means for us to marvel at Jesus. Because marvel is a strong word, word right? It's a really strong word to be astonished or surprised, to wonder, to even be perplexed because it's just so impressive. But marvel at Jesus at this confrontation. I'm actually, I actually marvel more at those men who are there than I do at Jesus. I marvel at, um, I marvel at who they are and I marvel at their alliance, right? I marvel at the way that they sort of come together in this moment, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, any of those, uh, anybody here a Harry Potter fan? Anybody? Right? I'm a Harry Potter fan. Uh, when, I, when I read this text, I see Pharisees and Herodians, I think of Gryffindor and Slytherin coming together. Right? That's what it's like in one sense. I mean, you've got the Pharisees. And, and in one sense, I hate to say this, but we're more akin to the Pharisees, right? Because uh, we're, we're really serious about what it means to honor God and live in a relationship with God. We're serious about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We're, we're serious about sort of maintaining 
that relationship with God. We want to advance God's kingdom purpose. We're here, right? That's what they were, they were serious about those things. Very serious about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They were very serious about really walking with God and honoring him and making sure that the community was kind of doing that as well, like kind of had that relationship. And they wanted to sort of have this independence and to be able to do those things. And so they, they pushed aside sort of secular influence, right? They pushed aside the Roman influence that they, they wanted to do that. But the Herodians, that, that wasn't their game. They, they, uh, they wanted some, some aspect of political independence. So while they were more focused on, on political position and power, they were in league with Herod. They supported him. They were Jewish. Uh, they supported Herod. And so they had this working relationship, this good working relationship with Rome, which meant that they were far more engaged with sort of the, the, the occupying force than the Pharisees would have ever, ever been. And it would have been difficult for the, the Herodians and the Pharisees to, to agree on just about anything. But they did, they did agree on one thing. Starting in Mark 3, we learned that they, they both opposed Jesus. How weird. What a weird alliance that God's people would have aligned with another group of people that not, not so much in order to take down, destroy another human being, right? Because that's all they saw him as, a radical way out. See, I marvel at that, don't you? That sometimes uh, these alliances that can sort of trip us up, and, and they are in pursuit. Mark uses this word when he talks about trap, that it, it's a word that connotes a violent pursuit. Like, I mean, like a hunter with nets, and like there's, there's a violent aspect to this word trap. It's not that they just want to catch him so they can mock him. No, they, they, are, they want to destroy him. And they are in alliance on this together. What a, what a weird thing. I, I kind of marvel at that. They're just people, right? They're not all that different than we are. We, we shouldn't sort of reduce them down or try to make them one-dimensional. And so they set this trap, right? And, and on the surface, it looks like a really good trap. It, it really does. I mean, I think if I had been one of them, I thought, oh, we're brilliant. We've got him. We've got him now, right? Because they, they set this question up. They, they flatter him first. And don't you just love insincere flattery? Oh, I love it, right? Oh. But he sees right through it. And I love that even more. You, you, you can't flatter Jesus and not, you know, not mean it, right? He can see through that. And so they ask him this question, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And this isn't like, a, like, the, like the IRS tax, right? It's, it's not the same thing, uh, although it might feel the same. But it, it's a tribute tax, right? Uh, it, it's a tax that um, it, do, it does pay for goods and services, so to speak. I mean, Roman roads and all that sort of thing. I mean, it is part of it. But, but that's not really. It's more of this tribute tax that has to be paid uh, Really, sort of this this idea that you're kind of honoring Rome for what they've done to you, in one sense, the zealots who are a group of people that really really wanted to push off using violent means the, the Roman sort of uh, domination. So the zealots would refuse to pay this tax, and they were probably sprinkled in this crowd. All right, they would they would they would refuse to pay it because it acknowledges Caesar's domination over them. So they would push it aside. 
The Pharisees resented this humiliation, but they would begrudgingly have paid it. And of course, the Herodians would have supported it on principle, right? Because it supported them. So Jesus is sort of, I mean, they think he's stuck, right? They really think, I've got you. Because no matter what he does, he's going to make somebody unhappy. My family and I, we lived in Alabama for a while, like when? Uh, and I don't know if you experienced this in down in Alabama, but we did. And this is my experience is that when I first arrived, I cannot tell you how many times when I met someone, within the first few minutes, they asked the same question. Who are you for? Now, I'm going to just tell you that I know that you have some rabid basketball fans here in North Carolina. I want to tell you, you do not hold a candle to anyone in the state of Alabama in regards to their passion for football. It is akin to religion, and I I am not kidding. Uh, And so what they meant by that was Alabama or Auburn, right? Who you for, Alabama or Auburn? Well, you see, uh, being from Tennessee... I chose the third option and told them straight out, go Big Orange, go Vols, right? And uh, and that just offended everyone because they didn't know what to do with that, right? What do you do with that? So I don't have any friends in Alabama. So and so Jesus settles for the third option and he just, he does something completely different. He doesn't, he doesn't placate either group. Instead, he goes uh, straight for the truth, and he asks them to bring him a Daenerys. Now, I don't have one of those fancy dollars. I got a quarter. But they bring him a Daenerys, and I imagine that Jesus takes this Daenerys, which is a day's wage, right? A day's wage. That's the tribute tax. I imagine that he takes it and he holds it up, right? Now, think about that for a minute. Someone in that group not Jesus, had a Daenerys in their handy, right? I wonder who it was. Was it a Pharisee? Was it a Herodian? Someone had one. Jesus didn't. And they hand him the Daenerys, and he holds it up, and he asks this question that Dave asked a moment ago. And he asks, whose image and inscription on it? Later today, you can uh, Google it. And you can, you can find a Daenerys online. You might find one with Tiberius Caesar on it that'll say uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And turn it over, and on the back, it's a picture of his mother, Livia, that says high priestess. I mean, there's something being communicated on that coin, right? Whose image is it? Well, it's Caesar. Isn't it interesting that Jesus asked about image? Isn't it interesting that he zeroed in on that word, image? We've heard it before. It's actually the same word here that you'll find in Genesis when God said, let us make them in our image. He's capitalizing on that word. He focuses their attention on this image. And then he says, since it's his image on the coin, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But to God, what's God's? If there's ever a mic drop in the Gospels, it's right here. And the response is, they marvel. Why? Because it's 
It's as if Jesus is asking them to consider something larger than taxes and governments and their alliances and their allegiances and their position and their power and their views on other people. It's almost as if Jesus said, okay, boys, if Caesar's image symbolizes the things that belong to Caesar, what image denotes the things that belong to God? And where do you find that image? I'm looking at it right now. And so are you. We are made in the image of God. We're focused on the word image here, and I think Jesus was, and, and what's God's image on? It's, it's on humanity. It's on people. Which means, of course, that if God's image is stamped on something, that it ought to belong totally to God. And those men at that moment, they, they didn't. They weren't rendering to God what was God's. They, they weren't in pretty much most aspects of their lives, right? And that's what I marvel at, because they should have known better. One theologian pointed out, in a world dominated by sectarian divisions, Jesus announced a decidedly inclusive principle. Whatever bears God's image belongs to God. This would have been a particularly troublesome idea for the Pharisees, who were obsessed with keeping the promised land holy. The basic meaning of holiness is belonging to God, and their passions for it was evident in the countless things they did to keep themselves, their temple, and their land pure and undefiled. The Jesus we meet in this gospel, however, defined holiness in terms that comes from the creation of the world. For him, holiness was not fundamentally a matter of personal, ethnic, or cultural purity. It was essentially a commitment to extend the rule of God to everyone and everything that belongs to God. We know ourselves to be made in the image of God and that our commitment to him is the only absolute commitment that can be expected of human beings. Everything else must be worked out in light of that one total duty. And Jesus is reminding them and reminding us that the only, only God, only God ultimately reigns. And everything else, everything else should be worked out in relation to that. I do marvel at the alliances uh, I often find myself connected to that may or may not entirely, completely be focused on advancing God's purposes and God's kingdom in the world. Give to God what belongs to God. Think about how that would shape the way that you see yourself all the time. I am made in the image of God. That's a powerful thing to consider. What would it mean for you to see yourself made in the image of God? What a, what a beautiful thing to consider. What about when we see all the other people that we encounter day in, day out, to consider these folks were made in the image of God? How then, as, a, as an image bearer, should I treat this other image bearer, whether they recognize it or not? What does it mean then if God's image is stamped on me that I should submit myself totally, fully to his sovereignty and his rule in my life? I have to admit, I marvel at Jesus here because he's not talking about taxes anymore or coins. And those guys, I think, knew it right away because they marveled. They were shocked. 
We thought we had him. And it turns out he had us all along. He saw through all this stuff and just got right to the heart of it. And now I'm shook, perplexed. I'm in awe and wonder of what Jesus did here. So at the end of this encounter, they marvel at Jesus. And then I think they went and regroup, which we'll hear about in coming weeks, because that's what we do. And so I want to leave you with a question this morning. I want to ask you, do you marvel at Jesus? When's the last time you really felt that sense of just marveling at who he is and what he's done? Are you astonished by who he is? Are you perplexed by him? Because that's a really good place to begin a journey with Jesus, being perplexed, right? That's a good place to start. If you're just kind of beginning this walk with Jesus, that's a really good place. And if you've been walked for a while with Jesus, you'll, you'll be perplexed at, at times, which is a good thing. Do you, do you recognize how awesome it is that you are made in the image of God? Do you also understand the responsibility that we have then to submit to his authority in our lives? Are you careful about the things that you align yourself with? Especially as it can keep you from really pursuing and advancing God's purposes in the world. Just a few questions. Do with this what you will. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you help us um, to understand what it means to be image bearers. I ask that you walk with us this day. Help us, Lord, to walk with you, rather, and to understand what it means to be fully yours as much as we can. Lord, I ask um, that there are folks here who don't know you, that um, they would come to know you, because I believe with all my heart um, that is the greatest thing that could happen to any of us. And so, Lord, we ask that you be with us. We ask that you use us and transform us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.